the messages that the Lord has brought through these different men that have preached in the last few weeks have just flowed together into one theme. Two Sundays ago, um, I talked about, it was still rattling in my head that um, at the debate that night that the atheist professor had said Christianity in Oklahoma is a mile wide and an inch deep. And he's right. For the most part, Christianity in Oklahoma is a mile wide and an inch deep. And, uh, and I talked about that. And I said, you know, it's, it's time for us as Christians to reprioritize. It's easy for us as Christians to kind of be walking along doing what we know to do. And we let those thorns, remember we talked about the parable of the sower, those thorns grow up and start choking the effectiveness of the word. And it does that because we allow ourselves to be busied and encumbered by everything else, right? Uh, last Sunday, Ronnie talked to us about Christians acting like Christians. We should be centered on the Father's business, even if that means being out of step with the culture around us. That's a, that's a very common, you know, it's one of those messages you've heard it a lot, and it's easy for it to lose its, um, its punch. But the truth is, that's exactly right. And we should be Christians not just when we're in the church, obviously, but when we're out there, right? Ephesians 4 says that our job as pastors is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means your job is to be a minister. Where you go, wherever it is you go, whether that's at school, whether that's in your job, if you're playing on a sports team, if you're, whatever you're doing, you are to be an ambassador of Christ while you're there. You may be the only minister of Christ they come in contact with. And the question is, are you taking the good news to them, or are you allowing that to become a secondary thing? Well, gosh, if I talk to my teammates, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be awkward. If I talk to these guys at work about Christ, it's going to make things awkward. Yeah, you're right, it is. There's no doubt about that. It's definitely going to make it awkward. The question is, does that social awkwardness trump the commission that you have from the king of glory to go with the gospel? And the answer is obviously no. Wednesday, Ronnie preached about the battle belonging to the Lord. which is, He said this, you cannot fight and win any spiritual battle. Either God fights it and wins it, or you lose. Period. Okay? We, we a lot of times have a misreading of Scripture. We like to read ourselves in as the hero, right? We're David slinging the stone, right? Life's problems are Goliath, right? I'm going to sling my stone of faith. You're not David. Okay, you and I are the, the Israelites that were cowering and whimpering at the side, realizing that is an unconquerable foe. I will never be able to beat that. And that's exactly right. By the way, you have spiritual battles in your life that are the exact same way today. There are spiritual battles facing you that you cannot win. And you cannot fight them victoriously. Either Christ will or you will lose. Period. I, anyway. It was a great message. I, I, something that came to my mind as he was talking about that, by the way, he was talking about Jericho. And now Jericho was an unconquerable foe, and yet it readily fell to the children of Israel because the battle was the Lord's. Now, th- this is something that I thought about while he was preaching. I thought, it makes so much sense now. Jericho was a little over two miles to march around. And remember, they did that every day, right? The last day, before the walls crumble, how many times did they go around it? Time out. What general says, hey, I got a great idea to a bunch of Bronze Age soldiers, right? I mean, there's no, there's no Reebok Airs. Nobody's wearing Jordans, right? Okay, these are sandals, basically. These are very rudimentary shoes, okay? What kind of general tells his entire army, I want you to go for a 14-mile march, and then I'm going to let the walls crumble? 
You know what kind of uh, general does that? A God who knows that the heart of man is absolutely proud and prone to self-aggrandizement, to self-glorification. He wants to make sure that they know this mighty fortress that is absolutely unconquerable was not conquered by you. Lord, we're going to walk around this. We're going to go for a 14-mile march, and, and then you're going to let us have a battle? I don't know if that sounds like a good plan. Well, in man's eyes, it wasn't a good plan. But it does show something, doesn't it? It shows that the battle really does belong to the Lord. It shows that that city wasn't conquered because of the strength in those warriors. It wasn't conquered because of how good the steel was in their swords. It was conquered because Christ was the one doing the conquering. You understand where I'm going with that? Okay. So today, I think the theme of these messages can basically be summed up by saying this. We are called as the people of God to be conscious to live out a gospel-centered life. A life where we're continually laying down our lives for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. A life of self-denial. And today we have a very different message in our culture. We have a type of gospel that tries to take and make a shell of Christianity where I can have something of Christianity, but at the same time, I don't have to deny myself. Yeah, I can do what I want to do and have Jesus too. And I, Michael Horton wrote a book, and I think it's awesome. Uh, it's called Christless Christianity, and in it he says basically Christianity in a lot of places in the Western world has become therapeutic, moralistic deism. We talk about how you should be a good person for goodness sake, right? And there's some sort of this, you know, deistic sense of God out there. God is whatever whatever you need him to be, right? He's that power that you pray to, or he's the little voice inside, or whatever. But we, we are really careful not to define him too carefully. Really careful not to define love too carefully, biblically, right? Basically, the, the message because, becomes, go be a nice person. Go be a good guy. And that's therapeutic, moralistic deism. But that's not the gospel. The gospel gets lost in translation because of that. And so when I say the word gospel, because you've heard that word a hundred thousand times, there's a lot of different things that that means to a lot of different people. And it's really easy for us to hear the term gospel, and we, we are so familiar with it that it's lost its impact. Um, I think of it a lot like this. I think the Pledge of Allegiance is kind of like that. And we said the Pledge of Allegiance in a lot of schools. You said the Pledge of Allegiance every day, right? And you, you still lose it. Like, I ask, I, I love to ask my students this. Do we live in a democracy? Because most of them will say, well, yeah. Really? Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands. No. You live in a republic. What's the difference? Then you have to explain the difference. The long story short is this, though. Sometimes when you say things over and over and over, they can become almost a mantra. Or you don't really think about what they mean. And I'm afraid that we do that sometimes with certain scriptural passages. I think a lot of times we do that with Psalm, the 23rd Psalm. I mean, we've read through that so much that it's lost the impact that it should have on us. Because it's easy for us to just kind of skim through. Well, I already know what this is. Just skim through it. I think it's easy for us to do that with the gospel. I think it's easy for us to hear the gospel and hear the term gospel so often that we lose what it really means. We lose the impact that it should have. It should not be something just for the unbeliever. It should be something that changes us too. It should be something that we need to hear over and over. Do you know why? Because the gospel is not just a one-time story. You get it and now let's move on. 
The gospel is something that Christ continually unpacks to us the entirety of our lives. He continually shows us how it impacts us, how our life should change and transform. Look, I get it. You got born again basically in an instant. But God is going to keep sanctifying you for the entirety of your life. You're going to keep changing, hopefully, to become more like Christ, right? Yes, that's what sanctification is. It is he, God, who works in you both to will and do to his good pleasure. God changes my will. Yes, you don't overcome sin by white knuckling it. We have a, I'm serious, and therapeutic moralistic deism kind of says that. The, the overarching theme of this kind of peripheral Jesus gospel is that if you have a problem with sin, you just need to try harder. White knuckle it, right? Do the Martin Luther thing. Hey, just try harder. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. Other people have done it. What's wrong with you? Get it together and get it done. That's not the gospel. It's not. The gospel is this. You can't do it. You have a problem in your heart. Your will is corrupted. Why does sin have this power in my life? Answer, because you love it. The reason sin has power in your life is because you love it. Our flesh nature loves that sin. What can I do? You can do nothing. Pick up your stone and sling it and you'll miss. And you'll miss every time. And you'll come up with new remedies, right? It was what alcohol was to me before I was a Christian. My, my, this is sad. This is where therapeutic moralistic deism goes. Okay, it was kind of moralistic preaching that I grew up under in a little Methodist church. Basically, hey, a Christian is a person who's a nice neighbor. I mean, that's, I'm really serious when I say that. That was my idea of Christianity. My idea of Christianity was Christians are those people that are nice. <laughs> right? So, as an alcoholic, a violent, arrogant, chip-on-my-shoulder alcoholic, I thought, you know what, I've got to, I've got to, just, I've got to become a Christian. Because Christians are those people that have it all together. And I knew I didn't have it all together. I mean, man, I'm a train wreck, and I know it. By the, by the way, <laughs> there are still areas where I'm a train wreck. If you don't believe that, go look in the interior of my car right now. My wife's trying hard. She's trying hard. There's times Justin and I will go to lunch and get in the car. I'm like, mm-hmm. Hmm. Stocking up. Yes. You could probably find animals in places in my car. I don't know. It's possible. Like, man, what is that smell? Get into the back of the car, and you're like, there's, there's like a dead cow back here. It's crazy. So, no, I was a train wreck, and I knew it. And my idea was, if I want to be a Christian, then what I've got to do is I've got to just white-knuckle it. I've got to become a Christian. I've got to do good, because that's what Christians do. Well, it is true that Christians do good. But doing good is not what makes you a Christian. You with me here? And I thought that's what it was. So what did I do? Well, I'll, I'll just quit drinking. Guess what I found out? Couldn't quit drinking. That was scary. It was the first time in my life. I had told my friends. I mean, you know it's bad when your drinking buddies are coming to you and, like, trying to run intervention. I mean, these are the guys that I'm going and drinking with on the weekends. They're like, hey, man, you're drinking too much. <laughs> you know you've gotten to a bad place when the people who are trying to intervene for you are the drunks. Hey, bro, you are drinking way too much. You're a drunk. Yeah, but you're way more of a drunk than we are. Okay? We only drink on, like, the weekends and special occasions like Fridays. <laughs> Me, I was, <clears throat> I was drunk all the time. I really was. I, I was scared I would become sober. I was dealing with 
a lot of pain. I didn't know how to deal with this emotional pain. And so my answer was alcohol. And I would get scared. I'd wake up in the mornings, and I could tell I wasn't as drunk as when I went to bed. Imagine that. And I would get scared that I was going to, man, I'll be sober by the time I get home from class. So what would I do? I'd get a solo cup, a red solo cup, and I'd fill it up with the cheapest, nastiest whiskey, because that's what I could afford. Dude, I'm in college, okay? That's ancient age. Ooh, man. They pay you to drink that stuff on some game shows, right? It's bad. What did I do? Why was I drinking like that? I, I don't want to get sober by the time I get home to class. Pour me 12 or 16 ounces of that. Head off to school. Drive to school. Go to class. Come back home. Drink. Buddy of mine says, you can't stop drinking, bro. Yes, I can. I can stop anytime I want to. Really? Then do it. Stop for one week. I'm like, one week? I'll, I'll do two just to show you I can. You know how long I made it? I think almost two days. And then I realized, man, I don't have alcohol. Alcohol has me. That was scary. What am I going to do to change this? And my idea was, if I want to be a Christian, I've got to break this. Now listen, if you preach that message to a person, there are only two possible responses. It is a landmine. It's a trap. What are the responses you could have? Number one, you become the Pharisee. I'll just work harder. I'll work harder in such a way that I may not beat this thing, but I won't let other people see it. That's the Pharisee. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make sure everything on the outside is good and whitewashed. But nobody's ever going to know what's really going on. Do you know what happens to a person like that? Been there. They become very performance-based. My, In fact... That mindset was so prevalent in me that even after becoming saved, I struggled with that for years. Right? I mean, I was a college football player, right? I knew, hey, you're just as good as your last game. That's, that's how it goes. And in my mind, that's how Christianity was. Well, if I do really well today, God can be proud of me. He can be happy. He can love me. But if I don't do well, I'm going to hang my head in shame. I'm going to just kind of try to get, you know, stay out of his eye, not pray too much, not, you know, not... I don't want him to really, I just want to blend into the wall. I just want to blend into the paint for a few days. And I get a few good days under me again and I can have my boldness back. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're a wretched train wreck. And Jesus loves you anyway. The gospel is Jesus saves you from you. Jesus saves you from wrath. And Jesus saves you from you. The gospel is not come do work. Work comes later as Christ comes through my heart, works and wills in me. So that's the first response. What's the second response? Despair. Absolute despair. Why? Because you, you basically have this, this idea that Christianity is people who do good things. And you have someone that tries it. You try it. They try it and they realize I keep failing. I keep messing up. I can't do this. And so what do they do? Heck with it then. It's for the birds. I've tried this. It's not working. I'm out. That was the prayer that saved me. I'm serious as I can be about that. First night I was in Oklahoma. It's God's country, people. First night I was in Oklahoma. I had tried to quit drinking for months. Could not do it. I had tried to quit sleeping with my girlfriend for months, could not do it. I had tried to stop getting in fights for months, could not do it. 
I was a train wreck and I knew it. And I realized if I stay on this path, I'm probably going to be dead. I mean, I didn't go to the bars to drink and have fun. I went to the bars to get in fights. To me, that was, it was fun. I didn't care if I got hurt as long as I could hurt somebody else. If I can hurt somebody else, we've had a good time. And I can remember the first night in Oklahoma, I, I can remember getting down on my, my bed, two in the morning, everybody in the whole household's asleep. I got into my dad's house. I was staying there that night because I was coming up to enroll at East Central the next morning. Start playing football here. And I get down on my, my knees and I just say, Lord, if you were real, if you really do exist, if all these things that everybody says about you is true, show me. Because I really didn't know. I mean, I was struggling with agnosticism. I was struggling with a lot of stuff. I said I, I had you know just a few little Bible verses that I could remember memorizing as a kid, right? And I can remember saying, "If if you really can save me, then save me, and I'll give you my whole life." But I'm just done. I'm I'm tired of trying. I'm done. And if you don't do it, I'm going off the deep end because I'm tired of trying. Can't do it. Utter despair. What happens? Wake up and I cry myself to sleep. Trust me, that's not something when you're a you know, big, strong 19-year-old football player you're going to tell everybody about. But I did because I was just absolutely in despair. And for the first time, the next morning I woke up and for the first time, it sounds cliche, but I mean it. The first time it was like I could hear the birds chirping outside. I didn't feel shame. I didn't feel guilt. I really did. I know that's strange to say, but I felt forgiven. You know why I felt forgiven? Because I was forgiven. Do you know what crazy thing happened to me? I didn't drink. It took me a couple weeks before I even realized it. Now that sounds, I know that sounds nuts. Like I was an alcoholic, a bad alcoholic, and it took me a couple weeks to realize I wasn't an alcoholic anymore. But I, I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind. Why? Because God had changed that part of my heart instantly. I did not change that part of my heart. I have no power to do that. Christ changed my heart instantly. Why did I? Why was I, I had gone two weeks? I had not been drunk in two weeks. Not only had I not been drunk, I hadn't drank. Not only had I not drank, I had not desired to drink. How does that happen? Because Christ came in and changed my heart. I didn't white knuckle it. I didn't overcome my sin by all of my work. No. Christ did. Christ came in and changed my heart. My concern is that in America we've taken this message of the gospel and we've mutated it. We've made the gospel into a self-help program. We teach people that, hey, look, people are basically good, but they need Jesus so they can be the best they can be. You know, Jesus is going to be the thing. He polishes those rough edges off of you, right? But otherwise, you're a good person. I can't begin to tell you how perverse that is. Come to Jesus. Have your best life now. He'll make all your dreams come true. Let Jesus be the Lord of your, your life and you'll be the softball hero. You'll be the baseball hero. You'll be the football hero. You'll be the basketball hero. Everything you want will come true. You'll be popular. You'll be influential. Your life will become a bed of roses. That is not the gospel. Come to Jesus. You'll be a winner. Not the gospel. Follow these Bible teachings and principles, and your success is guaranteed. 
It's not the gospel. Now listen, it is true that the Bible has principles for life. And following them very often will make you more successful in whatever field it is that you're in. But that is not a guarantee. The Proverbs are not promises, they're principles. You are not guaranteed that. You may come to Christ and your family may try to cut your throat. We have a friend who preaches here from time to time that that happened to him. He has not seen his family since he was 16, and he's almost 40 now. Why? Well, because the last time he was there, he was a Brahmin. In, he was a Hindu. He raised Hindu. He was a Brahmin. He, was, he got a Gospel of John. That's what saved, saved him. Somebody gave him the Gospel of John in Hindi, I think. Maybe it was Tagalog or whatever it is. Anyway, it was the... the the, the language that he spoke, though, his indigenous language. And he knew he's not supposed to have it, but he was just so curious, he just had to read it. <laughs> he was a Brahmin priest. His family was a family of priests. That means his dad was the Brahmin priest, and his dad before him, and his dad before him, and his dad before him, as long as records had been kept. And he came to Christ because of that Gospel of John. Guess what happened? That doesn't look real good on your family when you come to Christ and they're all Brahmin priests and they decided, well, we've got to kill him to retain the honor of our family. That happens in, in India, in, in Hindu. It also happens in Islam. There have been a couple of cases here in the U.S. where a young man or young woman will come to Christ and their Islamic family killed them to retain its honor. What happens when you preach the message that if you come to Christ, everything will go well and all of a sudden their family tries to kill them? What happens when you tell somebody, hey, I promise you, you just come to Jesus, everything's going to be fine, everything's going to be a bed of roses. That is not the gospel. It's a message that almost assures apostasy. Why? It's, just, it's the same, it's the parable of the sower, right? You've got the one that has no root, and immediately when trials and testing comes, they fall away. Why? They, somebody told them, hey, come to Jesus and everything gets better. And they came to Jesus, and guess what they found out? The Bible has some other promises, too. Right? Like Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I didn't see Creflo Dollar preaching that one. I didn't hear the Copelands, you know. Yeah, stand on that. Just name it and claim it. I claim that one. That's a promise. It is a promise, though. It is a promise. What will happen when you decide you're going to follow Christ? Let me tell you what will happen typically in our culture, where everybody's a Christian, of course. Um, When you decide that you're going to really follow Christ, your friends will probably abandon you. You'll have to find new friends. I did. All my friends are my drinking buddies. Now I'm not going out drinking with them. All my friends were my carousing buddies. Now I'm not going out carousing with them. What do you do? You get a little lonely. That's what you do. Right? You start having to go through a process that's called sanctification. And part of that is you literally have to find new friends. And that's hard. But listen, the call to Christ is a call to come and die. It's what baptism is. It's a symbol of dying to your old way of life. Your old selfish wishes, your old desires, your old aspirations, all those dreams for your own glory have to die. I go and play college football. 
I was a big guy and I ran fast. And I thought, by golly, I'm going to set the I'm going to set the East Central record for sacks. That was my big deal, right? Because I was a defensive end. I did not realize that Mark Gastineau went to East Central. Okay, all right, like nine-time All-Pro guy, right? Thirty-seven sacks in one season. I did not realize, but he did. So then I went down and saw that on the Wall of Fame, and I was like, oh, maybe I can be second or something, you know? <laughs> I'm not getting 37 in a season. I'm not getting 37 in my life. Okay, but the long story short is this: I had dreams. I had goals for me. You know what those dreams and goals entailed? Me and lights. Glory for Paul. And hey, when I get glory, Jesus, I'll tell people about you, and I'll share your glory too. Hey, this is, this is a mutual deal, right? Make me big and famous, and then I'll make you famous. Got bad news. <laughs> That's, that ain't how Jesus works. You know what he does sometimes? Sometimes he goes, mm, those dreams that you have for you, that's not the dreams I have for you. So I start praying. Now, you know, I'm just new Christian. Lord, make me usable. Use my life to reach others. Do you know what happened to me? I started getting injured. I, I was not prone to injury, and I am getting injured. My, my rupture my ankle. Uh, takes me two, three months to recover from that. About the time I recover, work my way back up the depth chart, finally get to where I'm, you know, getting back into the rotation. What happens? Hurt my knee. Now I'm out again and going through rehab, and I get back into it, right? And I get work my way back up through the depth chart, but get back in the you know, starting rotation. And what happens? Hurt my shoulder. I mean, I'm I am really upset at God by this time. Lord, what are you doing to me? Don't you understand? I'm not getting any playing time. <laughs> I mean. Let's just, let's just call those kind of prayers what they are. Don't you understand, God? I'm not getting any glory here. Okay? What's wrong with you? I thought if I came to you, I'd get glory too. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> I was praying, Lord, make me usable and let me reach people. But you know what was happening? I was going through rehab. And while I'm going through rehab, I've got a whole bunch of people that have to be in this room with me. And we're just talking about Jesus. And to me, that made no difference. I'd never even thought about it as being like, oh, that's a good thing. It was just natural. It was normal because you're a Christian. You talk about Jesus. I can remember finally getting, I mean, I'm finally getting through these injuries. And we're, one day we're at practice. And uh, I get down in the dirt. And we're running these 220-yard sprints. We're running from goalpost to goalpost and back. I mean, they're just killing us. And, you know, it's hot. By the way, I, I'm, I'm a Kansas boy, okay? Western Kansas, when it's hot, it's dry. Okay, so when you go into the shade, it's nice and cool. Right? You can breathe. Southern Oklahoma is not that way. I mean, two a days, we have all black uniforms at the time. Everything. Helmet, everything's black. In two a days, in summer. It's hot. Like, Lord, you're trying to kill me. I get down, I can remember getting down. I was all the way at the very end of the line. And I can remember getting down in my stance. And you had to look to the middle because that was where the coach was. He'd, he'd snap a ball to start the. You know, start the sprints. And as I looked down this line of people, there must have been 30 of us or so on the line. I realized not one of those guys is born again. And it was the first. I was not a emotional guy. But it broke me. I can remember he hiked the ball. We start running. And I'm, it's all I can do to run because I'm like crying. Tears are coming down. And thankfully, by the mercy of God, that was the last sprint. We get done. 
circle up, everybody breaks, and we go back in the locker room. I stayed out there in the field. I get down to the 50-yard line. I'm just like, God, if a bomb was dropped on this field today, maybe two of us would be with you. Maybe. And here I am praying over and over and over, make me usable. Use my life. And what am I thinking that means? I'm thinking that means make me the starter. Give me the glory. Let the scouts see me. And you know what Christ is doing? No, that's not how I work. I want you to put your social issues on the line. I want you to put your social standing on the line. And I want you to take this gospel to this bunch of wretches that, by the way, you're one of. That hurt. It hurt. But that was exactly what Christ was doing with me. Matthew 16 says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice there are two qualifications. Matthew 16, 24. Two qualifications. Deny himself, Take up his cross. That's basically two ways of saying this. Deny yourself and deny yourself and then come follow me. We want a version of Christianity where we can let our, our flesh have comfort. We don't have to deny ourselves. We can, we can be all that we want to be, but we still have Jesus too. We want the version of Christianity that says, hey, if I pray to Jesus and I worship him, he'll let me hit the home run at the end of the game. I'll be the hero. I'll hit that three at the very end of the buzzer. I'll be the hero. I'll be the guy that scores the winning touchdown. I'll hold up the trophy. And then I'll tell people, hey, thank you, Jesus. I have bad news for you. The vast majority of the time, that is not how it works. How does it work? Jesus says this. You want to follow me? It's going to take a lifestyle of denial. You want to come after me? Take up the cross. That was not a piece of jewelry in that time, right? It was a really, really painful way to die. And Jesus is saying, this is what your life will be like. You will die to yourself to follow me. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Can I suggest to you that maybe the reason our lives aren't as fruitful for Christ as we think they should be or that we want them to be is because we're just a little bit reticent to deny ourselves? We're just a little bit gun-shy on, on dying to our own wants and wishes. Is that possible? I can tell you this. It's a recurring theme in my life. <laughs> Constantly, God puts me into situations where I can either deny myself and see fruit, or I can love myself. And I'm going to tell you right now, it is a battle. What is it a battle between? It's a battle between Christ's spirit, which says, deny yourself Take up your cross, follow me, and a battle of my own flesh that says, why should you do that? Just live in comfort. And that's where we are. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. I just want to be liked. I want to be popular. Well, then guess what? You're not going to have much fruit for the kingdom. And yet whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit is it a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Man, what a great question, right? What profit is it, Paul Wilson, if you made it all the way through and you became a big football star and one day you made it to the NFL 
and millions of dollars. But in the process of that, your own soul was what was bargained away. Profit you anything? What does it profit? Don't get me wrong. I'm not against having a good education. I'm not against being good at whatever it is you do, your job, or being a sports star or whatever. I am if that interferes with the gospel. The moment that interferes with the gospel, do you know what that's become? An idol. I got done with football. I said, I, I got to do something else. I got to find a way to be competitive. I'll take up judo. Look, I love judo. Okay? Obviously. I tore myself apart for it. Paying back my student loans. It's an old football injury. I just did it really well this time. I got, I was doing, oh my golly, I, I have an addictive personality. And I realize I have an addictive personality, which is why I don't get involved in certain things. That's why when people ask me like, hey, have you played this video game? No. No, I've not. You ought to play it. No, I will not. Why not? Because 20 hours later, you'll peel me away from the TV screen. And I'll be like, what did I just do with a day of my life? I'll never get that back, right? I'm not going to do it. I have that kind of personality. And Christ, <laughs> Christ loves me through it. And Christ calls me to die from it. So I get into judo, man, I really get into it. I make my own grappling dummy. You know you're really into it when you make your own life-size grappling dummy. I didn't have the... the you know, the money to actually buy one, so I just made one. And what did I do? Every day when I got home, if I was watching TV, if I was listening, I, I would listen to the Bible on CD a lot. If I was doing that, the whole time I'm doing that, I'm on the ground. I'm doing, right, I'm going to do this arm bar. I'm going to do this leg lock. I'm going to do this heel hook. I got into it, man. And uh, there were a couple of guys at our dojo at the time that were really, really good. In fact, the number two guy in the state in light heavyweight was there. And I ended up beating him. And I realized, hey, I've got a legitimate shot at the Sooner Games to medal. I'm going. Right? I'm, I'm getting ready for the Sooner State Games. Because I can medal at these things. This is going to be awesome. Do you know what that was about again? <laughs> My own glory. Do you know what happened about two weeks, three weeks? I mean, it's right before, basically, you have to pay all your entrance fees and you have to go. Man, was I getting convicted. The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord was telling me, I want that. I'm like, uh, you can have it in three weeks. Right? Lord, you don't understand. Uh, uh, I've got a lot of good reasons for this. Um, I mean, I'm staying in shape, and I'm learning a skill. This is a really good thing, and I'm really good at this. In fact, I can get money from this. I can actually get people to pay for my school with this. I want that. Let me tell you something. When the Lord puts his finger on an issue and you are unwilling to give it up, that is an idol. And I promise you throughout your life, your heart is a factory of idols. And God will one by one put his finger on them and say, I want that. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to struggle because you want it too. It's true. Do you know what, though? Sometimes you giving up that is what makes the gospel so real for someone. In fact, I wasn't even going to go here, but let's do. Go over to 1 Samuel chapter 6. I want to show you something. This is powerful to me. Boy, I'm in dangerous waters now because I am not on my notes here. And my shoulder is killing me. 
<clears throat> so here's what's going on, right? The uh, children of Israel have gone to war, but they're basically a bunch of wretches who have decided not to listen or obey the Lord. And so he says, that's it. I'm going to let you be beaten in battle. The Philistines are going to conquer you and they're going to take the ark. So the Philistines, remember, these are the pagans. So, in fact, so wretchedly pagan, God says they're worthy of death. Okay. They have now taken the ark. And here's what happens. Chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners saying, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Here's what's going on. They brought it back to their temple, the temple of Dagon. They bring it in. That night, the whole statue, this huge statue of Dagon, falls over prostrate. In other words, as if it's worshiping the ark. They come in the next morning. They don't like that. They put the statue back in its place. They, the next night, it happens again. They come in the next morning, except this time the head and the hands are all cut off. They're like, this, this God of Israel is destroying our stuff. Right? Because only the body's left. Then... Plagues break out. There's tumors on everybody. Everybody. They get mad about that, right? And rats come in. I mean, they've got all kinds of pestilence and disease going on. So they go, well, let's not keep it here. Let's send it to one of our other countries. Basically, there were five countries. You can think of them as countries that were under Philistine rule, right? Kind of like the United States, right? Fifty states. But in this case, it'd be five. So they send it to each one. Well, each place that the ark goes, this stuff happens. Finally, the Philistines are like, dude, we're done. How do we get rid of this thing? How can we send this back to its place? Because we think it's probably the God of the Israelites that's doing this to us. But they're not real sure. Well, maybe it's the God of the Israelites, but maybe it's just by chance. So this is what they say. Um, in fact, let's just go to verse 7. Now, by the way, they, they made a bunch of gold. They made gold tumors and gold rats, and they put those on there as a trespass offering, right? They, they, now they say, verse 7, here's what you should do. Make a new cart. Take two milk cows which have never been yoked. Try that sometime. Hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Try that sometime. Then take the ark of the Lord, set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. So these two things are on the cart, the ark and the trespass offering. Then send it away and let it go. Watch this. Verse 9. And watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. God has. If not, we'll know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Let me, let me read this through and I'll explain. Verse 10. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and images of the tumors. And then the cows headed straightway for the road to Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went. And they did not turn aside to the right hand nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping, reaping their wheat in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. 
and it stood there. A large stone was there too. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. You're the cow. What did they do so that they could know for certain it was God? They loaded this ark up and they said, Beth Shemesh is this way. And the thing that these cows love the most in all the world is there. We will take their little babies whom they love so much they will die for and we will put it there. And we'll put the ark and the gold on the cart and we'll set it so that if they want to do what their God wants them to do, they're going to have to leave the thing that they love the most. And those cows went, lowing as they went. It hurts. I don't want to do it. My flesh is screaming, but this is what God says to do, and I will do it. And these pagans knew that God was with them because of that. They didn't know that God was the God in Israel because they were so prosperous. They knew it because they were willing to go through such pain to serve him. That is the God we serve. That is the life we're called to. It's a life of sacrifice, and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it means leaving relationships that you love, lowing as you go. Sometimes it means leaving dreams that you love, lowing as you go. Sometimes it means your life is crushed by Christ, and in the process of that crushing, the fragrance of the gospel is released. That those around you can see, no, they really do love Jesus. How? How was it that the people in the Eastern Bloc countries saw Christ? Because they would torture these Christians and these Christians would sing hymns. We left him outside in the snow all night. We put his entire family in jail and he's singing to Jesus. You know what he's doing? Yeah, he is. He's carrying that cart, lowing as he goes. Killed his family, but he still sings about Jesus. We've taken everything he could love, and he still sings about Jesus. Sometimes it's not your wealth. It's the preciousness of the gospel in the times of pain that show people that your faith is real. You have a faith that's not like others. You have a a faith that's not like the Muslim guy down the street. The American gospel is something more akin to Jesus the genie. He becomes the one that grants me all the wishes and desires of my heart. No denial necessary. Jesus isn't at the center of that gospel. I am. Jesus is on the periphery. And I'm still on the throne. Jesus becomes little more than a personal talisman, a good luck charm. The one I turn to to get what I want and when I want it. That's not the message that Jesus preached. Denial of self is the keystone of having a fruitful Christian walk. It is. 
It's what allows the gospel to come forth and shine in our lives, and it's only when our own wants are put to death that the life of Christ can come forward from within us. I think it's very telling. John Hall and I talk quite a lot. And he told me they'd been in a lot of different churches. In fact, the, some very large churches. Obviously, he's an elder at the village. That's a pretty good-sized church. And he said, by and large, big churches aren't the big givers. I wonder why that is. You've got a lot of people, a lot of money. How in the world could you not be a big giver? Well, if the message that you're preaching is that that money is rightfully used on yourself, you don't have a, left, a lot of left over to give. The problem's not that the church is big. There are big churches that do the will of God. Praise God for that. The problem is the doctrine being preached. Is it the real gospel or is it the American version? The point of the gospel is to come to Jesus and get Jesus. The point of the gospel is not coming to Jesus to get stuff. If you preach a gospel that someone should come to Jesus to get stuff, you're leading them to Christ through idolatry. It's like marrying someone for their money. Right? Oh, no, I really do love you. But just letting you know, as soon as the money runs out, I'm out. That's idolatry. Jesus, just give me this opportunity and I'll serve you. Give me that good stuff. Give me that big, that big house and the nice car. Let me be really rich and let me be well known and well thought of and dignified let me have clout in the community then i'll serve you it's not the gospel the beauty of the gospel is that you come to jesus and the very king and creator of the universe promises never to leave you nor forsake you even in the deepest and darkest of trials he promises to give you a new heart he promises to give you new wishes and new desires that are in accordance with his will and his word Jesus is free, but he is not cheap. James 4, 4 says, or James 4, 1 through 4 says, Where do fights and wars come from? They come from your desire for pleasure in your members. You lust and you don't have. You murder and covet and yet you cannot obtain. But you don't have because you don't ask. I noticed I was in the word of faith for eight years. I heard this message preached and always verse 4 was cut off. Yeah, you don't have because you don't ask. See, just ask God and just stand on it, believing he's going to give you that new car, give you that better job, give you that big raise so you can get that big house. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own pleasures. That one doesn't get preached. Adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus is free, but he is not cheap, and he will not abide with idols. It cost the king of glory his life to forgive you and bring you into right standing with God. It cost him his life to redeem you and bring you in right fellowship. Want no secret? It'll cost you yours, too. The gospel has often gotten wrong in our culture because we have a faulty view of man to start with. We typically view people as basically good. Joel Osteen says this. It's my favorite preacher to quote. He's a pretty quotable guy. Most people might make poor decisions every now and then, but deep down, they've got a good heart. He sounds more like a Disney movie than a pastor. 
Follow your heart. You've got a good heart inside after all. That is not the gospel. That is not the message of the scriptures. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart of man is the most deceitful of all things. You've got a good heart. Really? It's the most deceitful of all things? And it's good? It's an interesting definition of good, sir. It's the most deceitful of all things, and it's desperately wicked, so who can know it? You do not have a good heart. Proverbs 28:26 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Follow your heart, you're a fool. Why? Because your heart will lie to you. Your heart will tell you you're a better person than you really, really are. I'm a good guy. I'm an honorable guy. No, you're worse than you think. In the words of the reformers, man's a creature who's totally depraved. That doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be, but it does mean that sin has infected and affected every part of your man, every part of your life, your body, soul, spirit, mind, will, emotions, all of it has been infected and affected by sin. Why should I tell you that? Because it can't be trusted. Your emotions can't be trusted. Your will cannot be trusted. Your heart cannot be trusted. So how in the world am I supposed to know whether this thing is good or not? Great question. You have a revelation from God, and it is without error. That's why you need God's word. It will guide you to truth. It actually can be trusted. And frankly, until the doctrine of depravity once again resounds from the pulpits across this land, we're going to continue to see this kind of unwarranted elevation of man and a lowering of the bar when it comes to the holiness of God. And you must stand against it. Now, now I'm going to do what I've wanted to do this entire time. I'm just going to preach you the gospel. <clears throat> I realize that we're coming, we're coming up into Christmas. And I realize that Christmas is in, in our culture is one of two or three times where we, we really are afforded some very great opportunities to be able to share the gospel with our friends and family. And I also realize most of the time we don't want to. You know what kind of trouble that's going to make? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. You know why? Because after I got born again, I decided I need to tell the gospel to my whole family. And every time I was around my mom... My stepdad, my brother, I mean, I was telling them about it until finally my mom called me and said, if all you can do is talk about Jesus, don't come home. And I said, okay. It was a lonely year. Thanksgiving, everybody's getting together, I'm not. Christmas, everybody's getting together, I'm not. Easter, everybody's getting together, I'm not. You know what? That wasn't my best life now. Do you know what it was? It was a time when the Lord was teaching me. He was refining me. Eventually, you know what happened? My mom called me back. Why haven't you come home? You told me not to. Well, it's really rude of you not to come home. Well, if I come home, I'm going to talk about Jesus. Well, you need to come home. It's not right for a young man not to come home on Easter and Christmas, Thanksgiving. Fine by me. But we're going to talk about Jesus. It's part and parcel of the package. Let me give you this. This is what I wrote up the other night, a few weeks ago, for that uh, panel debate thing at East Central. 
I didn't know who all would be there, but I knew this. I knew that if they give me eight minutes, they said, hey, you've got eight minutes to outline your position, and then we're basically going to throw questions, and you'll have to defend your position after that. Cool. Well, if you give me eight minutes, I'm going to share the gospel, right? So I, maybe I could have taken that time to talk about the solas or, you know, the deity of Christ and all that good stuff uh, and how it differentiates us from Islam and Judaism and all that, but I wanted to get the gospel out. So I'm going to give you this, and here's why I'm going to give this to you. It is my job to help equip you. I don't have an easier, more simplified way to explain the gospel than this. Okay? So I'm going to try to do that. The heart of Protestant Christianity, the focus of what it is and what it's about, can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. So what is it? What is the gospel? Well, the word literally means good news. So what's the good news concerning Jesus Christ? Well, the problem is, before I can give you the good news, you have to know the bad news. If you don't know the bad news, you can't know the context. The bad news is the couch that the jewel of the gospel is put into. Here's the bad news. God is perfect, he's holy, and he's just. And you and I, my friend, are not. And one day we're going to die. And after that, we're all going to live eternally with God in heaven, or we're going to be eternally separated from him in a very real and literal hell. To live with God, though, we have to be perfectly righteous just as he is. And we're not. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all, man, all mankind is unqualified to live in fellowship with God. That is the truth. That's the setting of the gospel. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. No one is a good person. You ask someone, are you a good person? And they say, yes, they are self-deluded. You're not a good person and neither am I. The we have a sin nature seems to me to be so obvious it's the point of being self-evident. After all, when was the first time you stole something, lied, cheated, or st uh, stole, deceived, or manipulated somebody else for selfish gain? When was the first time? Can you remember? I'll bet you can't even remember. You were probably so young, you can't even recall. Maybe you were stealing a toy you wanted from some other toddler, or maybe you hit somebody so you could take their bottle. Or maybe you pretended that they hit you so you could steal it. Who knows? And yet, how is it that you knew how to do all that? Did your mom sit you down, teach you how to lie? Hey, son, if you take those cookies that I told you not to take, and I ask you if you do, just tell me something that's not true. Well, that, that's a great idea, Mom. I've never thought of that. No, your parents didn't have to teach you that. What happened? The first time my mom set a bunch of cookies out on the counter to cool and said, don't get into them, and then walked off, what did I do? They're cookies, dude. Look at me. I ate them. That's kind of a theme in my life. What happened? I ate it. You should not eat it. I know, but I did, and I'm sorry. Yeah, I ate it. What did I do? And my mom comes in and says, hey, what happened to those cookies? Do you think my mom didn't know? I mean, she's asking the same rhetorical question that God was in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? Who told you not naked, right? What happened? He knows. My mom knows. What happened to the cookies? I don't know. Chocolate all over my face. She knows. Why did I lie to her? Because it's in your nature. My nature is selfish. My nature is sinful. 
My nature is to do those things that will promote me, period. Guess what Christ does when he comes inside? He starts squishing that nature. Because now I'm, I've got the nature of the, the flesh in me, but now I also have the spirit of Christ in me. That's an entirely new nature. Psalm 51 tells us we were conceived in iniquity and born in sin. We have a natural, intense desire to gratify the carnal cravings of our flesh, even from birth. And that nature doesn't fade away as we age. I, I thought that when I was younger. Like, hey, this will get better as I get older. No, it won't. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Think about this. A wage is what you earn for work you've done. You earned death. The wages of sin is death. The just and righteous payment for our sins is physical and spiritual death. We have literally earned it. So now we have a very real problem. We all stand guilty of sin, and the just punishment for our sin is more than we can bear. What's the solution? How is a person who's guilty of sin, how can they be made right with a just and holy God? That's the question of every religion on earth. And every religion on earth postulates the exact same answer, strangely enough. You work for it. There is one exception to that rule. Biblical Christianity. You cannot work for your salvation. Catholicism says you can. Mormons say you can. Jehovah's Witness say you can. Islam says you can. Judaism says you can. Hindu says you can. You just work for it. You be a good person. And if your good works outweigh your bad, you're worthy for heaven. That is not how justice works. All you have to do is have a little bit of logic, and you know that's not true. Okay, think about this in terms of legal justice. we got a guy, he, he, he kidnaps a woman, takes her out in the woods, rapes her, murders her, runs away hoping never to be caught. His conscience bothers him. He knows he's done something incredibly evil, so he's got to atone for it, right? So over the next ten years, he devotes himself totally to charity and good works. He feeds and clothes the poor, he houses the homeless, he donates millions to charities. Ten years later, there's a knock on the door. It's the police. Mr. Smith, we're here to take you in for the abduction, rape, and murder of little Destiny Jones. But, uh, but haven't you seen all the good I've done? Look at all the good I've done this last 10 years. I mean, I, I, I helped all these people who were poor. I, I clothed people who didn't have enough clothes. I helped the homeless. Didn't you see all that? Well, yeah. Glad you did all that. You're not going to jail for that. But that doesn't absolve you of murder. You see, you still murdered. And that is the truth, friend. I don't care how many good works you've done. It doesn't take away the bad ones. You need atonement for those sins. And you cannot work your way into worthiness. Because no work that you do can erase your bad. Does the Bible tell us to do good works? Yes, of course. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to look at the good of the orphans and widows, the outcasts, the maligned, the marginalized, etc., etc. Yes, the Bible tells us to do good works. But it does not tell us that we can be saved by doing good works. You cannot be saved by doing good works. No amount of good deeds can ever erase your bad ones. That evil must be punished. God's just and holy nature demands it. And what's the wage that those sins demand? Death. Someone's going to have to serve a death penalty for your sin. Either you will or you have to find a qualified substitute. But here's the problem. 
If you find someone to substitute for you and they have even one sin, they can't die for yours. They got to die for theirs. To be qualified as a substitute, you must be absolutely blameless. You must be a lamb without spot or blemish. Why do I follow Christ? It's not because Muhammad was a good guy and Jesus just, you know, sounds better. It's not because, well, the teachings of Buddha are nice, but, you know, Jesus is just a little better. No, I follow Christ because he's the only qualified substitute. He's the only qualified savior. He's the only qualified Messiah. The gospel is this. You can't save yourself, but there's one who can save you. You can't work yourself into heaven. You can't work yourself into being a good person, but there is one who can and will save you. As Romans 5, 6 proclaims, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to be able to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get it all together. No, he died for you as a sinner. He is not asking you to be perfect tomorrow. He's asking you to follow him. Why do we follow Christ and proclaim him as the only way to heaven? Because he really is the only way to heaven. He is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. You don't get to Christ by your good works. You don't get to God by following some other man. There is one and one only answer, and that is Christ. Because of our sin, we have a great need for a Savior. And because of Jesus Christ, we have a great Savior for our need. That is the essence of the gospel. Let no man pervert that message. The gospel is not that you can save yourself. The gospel is not that you can be a good person. The gospel is there's one who will come inside of you. He will change you. He will work and will to his good pleasure. And the scripture gives us another great promise. He who begins this good work in you, he will complete it. He will bring it to completion. He will not abandon you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He will change you. And you will one day live with him. You have no reason for despair. And you have no reason for pride. You didn't do it. And that's good news. Because you aren't judged based on your performance. And that's really good news. I'm not saying for us to say, well... Who cares then? Let's be immoral. Let's be the antinomian. That's not, that's not Christianity. I am saying this. You will fail. You will. And when you do, you need not despair. Why? Because there's one who has come and paid the price. You will fail. And when you don't, there's no reason for you to be proud. Why? Because there is one who's working in you to do it. You didn't win the victory. Christ did. I'll say this again. Because of our sin, we have a great need for a Savior. And because of Jesus Christ, we have a great Savior for our need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know your word is truth. We know sometimes it stings and it hurts a little bit, Lord. But it's medicine to the soul. Father, I ask that we would be able to see your gospel afresh and anew, that it could be the very center of our lives, not the periphery, 
not the sideline, but that it could be the center of our lives. God, if there are those here today, Lord, who came in without knowing you as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their saving one, that, God, you would work in their heart, that when they leave, they know you in an entirely different light. Let them know, Lord, it's their failures do not disqualify them. Their failures don't disqualify them from being loved by a Messiah and a Savior of, of your caliber and your grace. You came to save sinners, Lord, and that's what we are. We thank you for that, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.